Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. All right. When you're ready, let's get into it. Cool. Let's do it. Hi, I'm Tobias Carlisle. This is the Acquirist Podcast. My special guest today is Clayton Gardner of Titan. He's got a super interesting story about moving from hedge funds to a dot-com startup in the investment space. Uh, we'll talk to him right after this. Tobias Carlisle is the founder and principal of Acquirist Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquirist Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquires Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit AcquiresFunds.com. Clay, how are you doing? I'm great. Toby, how are you doing? Well, thank you. So Titan, what is it? So Titan's a mobile investing platform uh, and we're democratizing hedge funds and all the alternative strategies. So uh, for anyone, you can download the app, sign up in two minutes. You can start with as little as $10. Um, and what we do is our first product automatically invests you and manages your money in a portfolio of 20 stocks um, that are uh, essentially high quality compounders. Um, so we use a quantitative systematic approach to take all you know, 10,000 plus stocks. We look at what the, the long term um, most fundamental concentrated hedge funds are investing in across that universe. Um, and then we assemble a 20 stock portfolio of their highest conviction picks and we 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 rebalance that on a quarterly basis We do our own fundamental diligence to vet them. So it's a 20 stock kind of best ideas portfolio um, Tend to be a lot of compounders and so that's our first product so folks who So they go to the website and then it's a little bit like acorns or something like that You can put in as I mean from the from the investment perspective We'll talk about the strategy in a moment, but just how like how what's the interface? How does that all work? It's really simple. You can think about us more as a uh, like a, a, a an, a, an active manager. So if you've heard of Wealthfront Betterment platforms, where you know you're downloading or using a, de a desktop app, you sign up, create an account, and then you deposit funds and you withdraw funds, right? So it's it's very simple. That's the only action users take today. Um, we're a mobile platform, so you can sign up in a few minutes. Um, you fill out a little bit of information about yourself, create an account, and then deposit funds. Um, you can deposit anywhere from ten dollars to hundreds of thousands of dollars. And uh, within a day or so, you get instantly invested in this portfolio of 20 stocks and we, we handle everything for you after that. I see. So the strategy is like a 13F replication. It starts out there and then you do some additional diligence. So let's talk about the, let's talk about the 13F replication part of it first. Who, who are you, can you say who you're tracking? So uh, we can't say who we're tracking at the fund level, but taking a step back, when we were whiteboarding our first product, because I, and I could talk about my background on the buy side. Um, having worked at several different fundamental long-term focused funds, you know, the idea generation process for a lot of these funds starts with what are the other you know, high conviction hedge funds investing in, right? And so they tend to be this kind of melting pot of ideas. You're meeting people at conferences, management meetings, uh, and then you go do your own fundamental work, but they all tend to coalesce around some of the same names, especially if they have similar styles. So my background was on the fundamental long-term kind of deep research approach. Um, so holding companies for three to five plus years, generally 10 to 20 longs, similar number of shorts. And so when we were whiteboarding Titan, we said oh, we want our first product to look like our core circle of competence, which is this high quality concentrated portfolio of compounders. Um, instead of doing that, you know, so it, it, in order to construct that portfolio, we said, why not use the same approach we used on the buy side? Um, so starting with 13F filings, which most funds above $100 million assets have to report every quarter, what we do is we look at the 13F filings of funds that fit a few uh, criteria that we believe uh, uh, represent long-term fundamental funds, right? Well, so if what, you look what are the at, criteria? Can you talk about that? So if you think about the data that's represented in a 13F filing, there's all the, the long positions a manager owns, including some of the uh, including the calls and put options. Um, there's the market value as of the last quarter, the number of shares they own, and you can be, and you know there's the evolution of how that complexion looks each quarter. So uh, by doing some data science, you can basically figure out what the quarterly turnover is. You can figure out what the concentration, what the sizing is. So how much of our manager's capital is in the top five to 10 picks versus his 20th and onward pick. Um, and you can kind of figure out, okay, is this the type of manager that holds a name for three to six months or three to six years? Right. And similarly, you can get a sense, you can almost start to back into, is this a manager that tends to be more fundamental in flavor? If so, they probably are more concentrated, lower turnover. Um, and then we also obviously do our own fundamental bottoms up work. Um, you know, if there's a, a fund with five to 10 names, 
uh, super chunky positions, maybe even a 13D filed uh, uh, with that position tends to be more activist. So we can use these criteria to basically start to segregate funds into different strategy buckets. And then our first product focuses exclusively on that fundamental long-term kind of, uh, and it does tend to be more GARP in flavor. Like these are not value funds that are like, you know, scraping for cigar butts. These are, these guys who hold these kind of growth compounder positions. That's honest work, mate, scraping for cigar butts. (laughs) Well, and then of that, you know, importantly, there is, you know, so on average, the positions tend to be owned by you know five plus funds, right? Um, the important thing about this strategy is it's fund agnostic. So to your earlier question, you know which funds do we follow? We're not saying like oh let's go pick X, Y, and Z funds. Like let's for example let's go pick a basket of tiger cubs and right. see what they own, um, because there's obviously some bias there, right? Like there's some some it's the the question of how do we pick that fund in the first place? There's probably some historical performance bias, um, some selection bias, and so what we do is. We use a minimum number of funds must own each stock as kind of the, the leading criteria, and we're almost agnostic. So there's some managers that will show up in the basket of funds that we track each quarter that are completely under the radar. They manage three, four hundred million dollars, right. and then there's the the you know the name brand funds managing ten billion that you would definitely recognize if I told you. And so what's nice about this is we're fund agnostic, so we're not anchoring ourselves to the given manager who could, for you know for whatever reason, close up shop, become a family office, and all of a sudden we have to redo our strategy. So. Um, it's almost a fund of funds approach if you think about it that way. Um, and obviously, because we're you know we're a startup, so we're not a fund. We we manage separately managed accounts, um, and we we have compliance, legal, everything is kind of as a service. So we're able to do this. We charge no performance fee and a one percent management fee. So I think we're giving folks a lot of the beta, and so far we've been giving them some alpha um, that would resemble what they'd get in a long only fundamental fund uh, at a fraction of the cost. So it's like a best ideas fund and you're kind of agnostic to who goes in there, but you're looking for guys who are doing deep fundamental research and looking to hold for longer periods of time. And you're kind of agnostic to whether they're, uh, what their values st- or what their style is, but you're kind of looking for maybe more growth at a reasonable price compounded type investors. Is that, that a fair summary? No, that's exactly right. And that's why this is, you know, there are some ETFs out there that try to do this. Like I can name a few that, are essentially 13F tracking ETFs. Um, the reason we're a platform, I mean, I could talk about our longer term mission and vision to build several of these funds and build custom portfolios for people. But part of the reason is that we, we there is a qualitative element, right? It is a little bit quantum in nature. We have an in-house research team that's vetting these because there are certain companies that'll pop up that definitely seem to suggest that there's some style drift within that basket of funds. So I, there, for example, there's a couple of companies that popped up on our screen that are almost certainly active activist names, right? And yeah, there's a lot of like long-term concentrated fundamental funds, but you know, they'll hear an idea at a conference and they'll do their own work and like they'll style drift a bit. And so that's where our team comes in. And because, you know, so each product we launch, we have one today, has a mandate, and it's our in-house research team's job to make sure each position that comes up in that screen is matching that mandate. So that's sort of what your fundamental approach is. It's to make sure that the positions match the mandate rather than doing any sort of diligence yourself or valuation work yourself is that what's is that how you're doing it we do we do valuation work ourselves um and then we, and it's not so much today um in order to you know to initiate a new position it tends to be more to understand how to rotate into a new position when something happens so i'll give you a few tangible examples um historically clients of ours have owned time warner um, which got acquired by at&t Right. And it got acquired, I think, in June 2018. So the question naturally is, OK, 13F filings aren't coming out till August. They come out 45 days after quarter end. What are we doing for the two months between the time this ticker gets delisted, gets swallowed by AT&T uh, and the next 13F scrape? So that's where our team comes in and we'll look at the next few securities in line and we'll kind of make a best judgment there. Um, same thing happened with a company called Ataba. Um, which was a tracking stock or a holding company essentially for Alibaba, uh, a similar story. So there's certain acquisitions, spinoffs, divestitures, kind of unique corporate actions that, you know, again, these filings would pick up, but on a delayed basis. And, you know, our clients look to us to make sure we're, we're making those right decisions in quarter. So uh, Meb Faber has done some research on 13F filings, and he one of the things that he observes is that the biggest position is often the worst performed in the 13F filings. I'm guessing that you guys are avoiding that by doing some of the additional work and looking at a few of the other funds, but have you considered that that issue? No, it, well, it's interesting. Um, I mean, one of the things we do is this, this first strategy is equal weighted. 
Um, so we have done some work analyzing kind of conviction. Uh, I know there's some firms out there that have done similar studies to kind of understand like our managers adding value by sizing things differently. Right. I think there's some, there's some uh, uh, data to suggest that uh, the manager's top 10 holdings do tend to perform better than let's say like their 15th or 20th idea, like they're better off investing more into those top few. So that's actually one of the criteria that goes into our strategy. We actually only look at the top 10 holdings for these managers. Um, so we definitely have some conviction weighting, but the way we try to level that out is, uh, is do we do equal weight all 20 stocks? So we rebalance each quarter. Um, and, and so that's how we try to you know, make sure no position is becoming too big. Um, and we back tested it and we, that's, that's, that's sort of a, a weighting that we're comfortable with. But um, I, I, do see, I, I definitely have seen some of the stuff that Meb's mentioned in his book. So it's a, an interesting path. Uh, you've gone from a hedge fund background into kind of a fintech, but still kind of hedge fund, uh, maybe ideology or approach to investment. So can you talk about how did you, like maybe from where did you go to college, what what what'd you do after school and how did you get to this point? For sure. I mean, I started investing when I was 12. Um, I guess this is 2002. Um, and I felt like a genius for the first five, six years. Um, it's good times for value. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I, it was like I made every mistake in the book, but it was almost the worst. It was almost the most painful types of mistakes because I, I was very much a trial by fire type investor. Like my parents let me buy my first stock when I was 12. I think it was Petrobras or like one of these oil companies. Oh, yeah. um, I, I, read, I heard about it on Mad Money. And that was like my source of investing education for five, six years was like the worst kind of, uh, you know, they, they have their own value, but it was not the kind of financial media that's, that's teaching you the fundamentals. Um, I went to Wharton undergrad, uh, started there in the fall of 2008, like a week after orientation, the world blew up, uh, Lehman went under and you remember I was basically riding that oil beta with my first few stocks thinking I was crushing it for the first five, six years. And then the world went to, you know, to, to rubble overnight. Um, so I quickly, and I had no idea what I owned. I never did any like fundamental analysis or any of the things we do today on the stocks I owned. I, I saw them as tickers and, and, you know, I was a very competitive person. So that's why I got into investing a huge athlete growing up. And, you know, I've, I've loved, always loved the game aspect of game theory aspect of investing, but it was a really hard lesson to learn having lost pretty, basically all of that the first few weeks I started school. So I, I promised myself at Wharton that I would learn the kind of fundamentals of corporate valuation and, and more of the, the theoretical um, components. Uh, and then I went to the buy side, um, was fortunate to have to kind of skip, be able to like, sort of skip the banking route that most, you know, business school grads, uh, go through. How'd and you I manage that? Side. Um, I, I had, I had a couple of internships, um, at Goldman's, uh, 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 their manager platform. Uh, so their fund of funds vehicles, and then at their multi-strategy hedge fund, uh, um, called, called Goldman Sachs investment partners. So, um, I had a few, I had a few opportunities, a few right connections on, along the way, that kind of aligned me with the right people on the buy side. So I was able to skip the, the kind of the horrors of banking. Um, but no, my, my five, six years on the buy side was a couple of years in private equity doing public credit and, and privates um, at Cerberus. And then uh, about four years uh, doing a fundamental long short um, at a fund out west called Farallon um, and then a, a startup fund here in, in New York City. Um, so my, my experience was, you know, I kind of built my mental models a few different places on the private side, public side. But everything kind of gravitated towards wanting to like feel like an owner in whatever I was doing. Um, so like my personal temperament is, I think about the edges that I have. I tend to I found that it's really hard to find an informational edge um, in investing. Um, if you do find one, it tends to decay really quickly. So every novel source of informational edge I found on the buy side, whether it's credit card or you know transaction data, geospatial like satellite recognition of like shopper behavior, everything basically gets replicated, and then it becomes what a few of your prior guests have talked about, which is kind of this meta game theory uh, competition. Uh, and then secondly, like analytical edge, um, you know, there's, you know, there's teams of, of quants and, and folks that I think are much better at doing that um, than I could be. So, you know, I'm really left with a behavioral edge. And that's the, that's the edge I think has the most uh, duration to it today. I think it's one that's sort of innate in most humans. So insofar as there's humans in investing, which I think there should be and will be, um, I think that's a, that's an edge that I've tried to exploit. So that was really why I decided to, um, to your question, to, to, to get into fintech and launch a company rather than, and serve the retail masses. So anyone who's unaccredited or credited can invest uh, in our products versus starting a fund, charging two and 20 and serving high net worth individuals um, is because I think there's a way huger, op- a way larger opportunity to, um, to basically help retail investors uh, exploit the behavioral edge that I think they tend to trip over themselves on that having. 
um, because a lot of them, let's face it, like they're not, they don't have an informational edge. They will never have an analytical edge. It's really the only edge they can have. So if you want to be, if you want to actively invest outside of an index fund approach, I think you have to, you have to be confident. You have your behavioral edge. And so I can talk about some of the things that we're building to help people exploit that. Yeah. Um, please. Yeah. What, what, yeah, are, you, what so, are you guys building? So if you, the way that we thought about it is like, if you think what most retail investors have access to today, 90 something percent of them, I think 97% of them are unaccredited. So immediately venture, privates, um, hedge funds, anything that charges carry, they can't invest it and they're not qualified. Um, so the question is, what, what, are they, what can they invest in? Well, there's mutual funds, there's ETFs, um, most of which are passive. There's some actively managed ETFs, um, or they can do it themselves. They can trade their own, their own portfolios. Um, if I think about the, the core user experience for these retail investors, um, everything is treated as tickers. So I go back to my original point, like my first five years investing when I was a teenager, I saw it exactly the way most retail investors see it today. It's you have a brokerage account, you go through whatever motions to figure out what tickers to populate in there, whether it's listening to financial media or you get a stock tip from your Uber driver and you put it in the account and then you watch it go up and down. And most people try to piece together information to kind of justify why stock's going up or why it's going down. Uh, they'll tend to buy, you know, buy high, sell low. And, um, and there's a lot of information, and none of it is really tied to what they own. Um, and that's, so that's why, for example, most retail investors underperform the funds they, they invest in. I think you probably heard the data point that like Peter Lynch, for example, compounded 30% for, I forget how long, at least I think a decade or two. And most of his retail investors underperformed him in the broader market uh, because they were trading his mutual fund like an ETF. So um, from first principles, we said like, well, whatever we build, we have to make sure it's direct to cons direct to consumer, and we have a distribution channel into this investor to be able to help them understand what they own, why they do, why they own it, to coach them through this volatility. Because otherwise, there's behavioral biases that they're going to fall victim to. So, um, so that's why we built a mobile app. Like we're we're a platform. We're not a fund. We're not a a ticker you can trade or find in any other account. You have to have a separately managed account with us. And what that enables us to do is, um, we're not just a you know a, a, a you know a, a, a graph in a mobile app. Um, and something you just watch go up and down, it's a full research experience. So like imagine if any hedge fund you were investing with uh, had a mobile app built for you where you could FaceTime with the portfolio manager, he or she would send you real-time thoughts on a daily basis, push notifications. Um, the same way that you think about consumer, right? Like if you think about all these social apps, like everything is social, everything's mobile first, uh, seamless, uh, yet you know, finance is still super archaic. Um, so that was that was the idea for launching Titan. Um, we have one product today, and I think we have a clear line of sight into other products that people should have on their portfolios, not just large cap growth equity, which we have today, but every asset class, I think, including privates over time will be democratized. Like they will be available to retail investors. It's just a matter of when. Would you implement them in the same way? Will it be 13F scraping as the first source of ideas or, or, or how would you do that? We, we, uh, no, we won't. Um, we uh, some some strategies will be primarily quantitative, systematic. Some will be more discretionary. Some will be uh, a blend. Um, so we kind of think about it as matrix. Um, and honestly, we're, we're really listening to our clients uh, when it comes to to future products. I don't think they care so much about how the sausage is made. Ironically, that's the one thing I found about retail different than institutional. Like if you go to any institutional allocator, you know they're going to ask you rightfully so massive sums of money on the line, everything about how you manage risk. Um, they're going to ask to see, you know, your sharp and your Sortino and, and all these statistics. And they're going to ask how, the, how exactly the investment process works and how you behave through drawdowns. Retail investors honestly really just want an experience. Um, they obviously care about returns. Um, but, but more than anything, it's times like these, like we're in the coronavirus kind of era right now. And times like these are where I think advisors and retail investors are actually tested. Um, so that's where that's the difference that on the institutional side, it was much more quantitative, systematically kind of testing. Why should I give this manager money on the retail investor side? The bar is honestly quite low. Like these mutual funds are still sending 10 page, you know, 100 page prospectuses once a year. And, you know, there's like Morningstar and all these backward looking rating systems. And so the bar is quite low. Um, <laughs> so I think we just need to continue to, to build transparent products. Um, that we can explain to people in English and whether it's quantitative or qualitative, I think is almost secondary to them. Given that you're retail focused and we're sort of in the, today we've gone through 25% down, which is the first time we've been down this much since sort of 2007 to 2009, all the other drawdowns before then have been much shallower and uh, have 
rebounded very quickly. How have you found your investors to be reacting so far? Surprisingly well. Um, if you would have asked me that a month ago, um, I probably given probably would have given you a more conservative answer. I would have said, you know, most retail investors, you know, it's kind of it's a it's a challenge in all of of, of kind of financial advisory. It's like you can tell clients a million different things. Uh, some fraction of them are just never going to listen, right? The, whatever media or data point they they hear or soundbite from friends is going to kind of override whatever this trusted authority says, and they're going to open their account and they're going to sell no matter what anyone says in the interim. Um, that's probably the conservative approach I would have told you. Um, but we, we've had two massive drawdowns since we launched um, Titan, um, both market-driven, kind of uh, and momentum and beta-driven to a large extent. Uh, the first was Q4 of 2018. We saw over 99% monthly asset retention and client retention. Um, we're seeing similar, actually a little bit better data this time around. Um, so we actually had our best month in company history in terms of net inflows in February. Um, and that's including the first few weeks where the coronavirus um, concerns really started to hit the tape. And that's continued into March. So we're on track for a similarly strong month in March. So I, I think it, com it comes down to like, what are we doing differently? I'm sure there's other platforms out there, advisors that are losing clients, losing assets, um, not just on a market performance basis, but on a gross assets basis as well. Um, and the only thing I can chalk it up to is like our core differentiator, which is that we have a distribution platform uh, direct into our consumers' pockets, into our retail investors' pockets. Um, we're chatting with them in real time. We have, it's a two-way street. It's not sending them emails, sending them reports, hoping they read. It's, we're actually capturing questions every day. People asking questions about how we're thinking about hedging their portfolios, which you started doing recently and shorting, them, shorting the S&P. Um, and so it's this dynamic feedback loop uh, that kind of uh, is right alongside their money that I think is giving them confidence to, to actually, they're adding on, on this weakness. Um, now, that, that said, like, you know, one of the challenges as an advisor is, you know, you don't want to be pumping your book all the time, right? Like you have a fiduciary responsibility to tell them how it is. So we've been really candid with people. Like in this drawdown, for example, we, we've talked about this second wave and this like double dip phenomenon. And we told our clients several weeks ago, like we started shorting the S&P for clients, hedging their books. I think it was right around the end of February. So about two weeks ago, uh, candidly telling them like you could be in for a lot more pain for the next few months. Like there's a lot more shoes to drop. There's a lot of unknown, known unknowns. And, uh, you know, a lot of advisors, for example, that's like, exactly counter to their business model right it's like if they're if their clients pull assets that's their source of revenue so as a startup you know we're definitely taking a long-term view um right now we're optimizing for client client you know engagement client client you know uh, retention um and user delight frankly um almost at the expense of, of asset growth because we know we build that trust early on that's something that you know these advisors that have straight mutual funds and don't know who their investors are are going to have a real challenge um retaining them Let's talk a little bit about uh, the opportunity set that you're seeing. Is it uh, is it improving? Are you, are you uh, uh, excited about what's what's coming what's coming up? Definitely. So I'm just pulling up our our, our screener here, kind of watch list. Um, it's funny because after the big run we saw um, in 2019, you know, a lot of these names still aren't screaming cheap. Right. Um, but if I look at the disparity. Um, if I just look at how there's been this 15, 20% plus drawdowns, almost, almost like, uh, um, almost equally weighted across the portfolio of ours and a lot of our screens, like a lot of these companies that are just, you know, completely unlevered, um, hard to imagine how people rip out, you know, internet. There's like some of these industrial distributors that are source, sole source suppliers. I think there's a lot of stuff that's gotten thrown out with the bathwater, so to speak. Um, so we're definitely, definitely getting, more, you know, incrementally more excited. Um, you know, our portfolio is definitely priced at a premium to like the broader market. Um, if I think about the average ROIC of our portfolio, it's, it's historically been about 25%. So, you know, higher ROIC companies, generally speaking, if that's a sustainable ROIC, they should trade at a premium. So these names have traded at low to mid twenties PE multiples. And, you know, we've been pretty clear with clients, like this is a GART portfolio, this for strategy, and it's, it's definitely subject to drawdowns. Like we saw a big momentum, uh, a big momentum de-risking back in August, September, we call it the, the great momentum reversal. Um, so our clients are kind of, they know what they're, what they're getting into. Um, and, and the S&P has been at 18 times. So we've been trading at a premium for a while. We still are, but um, I just see a lot of names, um, particularly, uh, you know, the, the big tech names. Um, and I know people are going to disagree. And there's definitely, you know, for example, companies like Microsoft, um, some of these companies that are trading, you know, they're doing, they may be doing mid-teens earnings growth and trading at 30 plus times earnings. Um, you can't argue they're cheap. But if I just look out three to five plus years, 
you know, even if you assume 2020 is a wash with respect to coronavirus and, and the broader kind of economic growth backdrop, it's hard to imagine these companies, you know, 30, 40% of intrinsic value has been shaved off in a matter of months. So we're definitely excited. I think it's informing how we're thinking about our second, third, and, and so on uh, strategies that we're launching to clients. You know, if our first product right now is large cap U.S. growth, um, kind of compounders in nature, I, I, you, we definitely see a lot of uh, value on the, on the small the small cap side of the spectrum. Um, haven't done that much work internationally, but um, yeah, definitely incremental buyers. I think we're just, we think the next six months are going to be really rocky. What's your expectation for the way that the portfolio will perform through a full business cycle? Do you have any view on when is a better time for the portfolio and when is a worse time for the portfolio? So for example, if I talk about deep value, deep value does very well, typically at the tail end of a drawdown, and then we'll do better out of the bottom, but tends to lag at the tail end of a bull market because the value bid just sort of goes away a little bit. So how do you think about that? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, we honestly haven't thought too much about like the, the relative sizing weighting of this because we just don't have other strategies right now. Um, so if I think about most people, our clients, most of their core alternative, like if I, a lot of these clients are rolling over accounts from you know, the Schwabs and the Vanguards of the world. And if I see how they're allocating, uh, most of our clients are coming from a place of diversification. Um, there's not even really a thoughtful approach to like the weighting or any of like the value versus growth or like small versus large kind of weighting dynamics that you just you alluded to. Um, early cycle, late cycle, most of them honestly are just invested across on average probably 10 to 15 uh, kind of old school mutual funds paying one to one and a half percent. And so they're effectively owning hundreds of these securities. They're almost just matching the index, doing a little bit worse and paying a high fee to a legacy advisor to do so. So I think first step as far as is like, you know, get invested in what we honestly, we do through the business cycle view this core flagship strategy as a better index um, by pretty much any means. I mean, the vast majority of the index's returns have come from the companies that we own. Like if you, if you looked at the top 10 drivers of returns probably over the last 20 years, uh, and, you, and you looked at our algorithm, how that's evolved, how the portfolio has evolved over the last 10, 20 years. Um, the vast majority of those, you know, large, largest contributors have been in our composite. So the, the whole point here is that, we, you know, these super stocks that tend to drive most of the returns through the business cycle, we're going to capture with this flagship strategy. Um, our beta is about 1.15, 1 1.2. Um, so it's definitely, I think people come in expecting it to be a little more volatile. But, um, you know, I mean, so far, I, I, I've been, you know, and I, keep in mind, like, this is a hedge strategy, too. So this is not a, just a long only. There is, like, a dynamic hedge component where how, we... How are you hedging? What's what's the uh, trigger for the hedge? So it's a momentum hedge. Um, it's systematic in nature. Um, what we do is we're looking at the, the Titan composite, this flagship strategy composite. Um, so the 20 stocks equal weighted, and we look at that compared to the S&P's trailing 12-month moving average. Uh so at a high level, you can say, oh, it's a simplistic kind of momentum, trailing momentum hedge. But um, the, the whole point here is like, again, it gets back to the behavioral uh, aspect that I mentioned. It's like most clients' problem is like they fear volatility or they, they say they want to be long-term investors and then they have a drawdown like we've had recently and they've totally forgot about their original mandate. So the goal here is, you know, when you onboard the Titan, we capture your risk profile. So we're going to ask you a few questions and we'll basically put you into either aggressive, moderate, or conservative. And aggressive users, you know, theoretically, they're answering questions and they're in that bucket because they're willing to tolerate more volatility. Um, so they should be less hedged in any environment. Uh, whereas conservative investors should be uh, more hedged in pretty much all environments. And so the thing about how it works in an environment like this, you know, our momentum hedge triggered at the end of February. Um, so our 12 month, our, our 12 month moving average versus the S&P's average performance for the last 12 months. Um, I mean, it was, it was crazy because we had significantly outperformed. So like the magnitude of a drawdown, like the, and the speed of that drawdown happened so quickly, um, that we, we, we turned that hedge on in, uh, in, in February. Um, and so is far, it, is it monthly? Are you looking at it on a monthly basis or are you yeah. looking at it on a daily basis or how? Yeah, it, it, that's a good question. We do it monthly. Um, as a lot of clients have asked about this, the reason we do it monthly is because if you look historically, um, you know, for it depends on this. As your scale gets greater, I think you can afford to do this more. But just the number of times, like the the the, the momentum of of Titan versus the S and P, uh, the crossover happens, can trigger all sorts of trading consequences. Now, keep in mind, like we're managing separately managed accounts. Um, we also offer fractional shares, so we have our own fractional share trading system. So clients come into us. 
they toss 500, 1,000, 10,000 bucks in and they're equal weighted across you know, stocks like Amazon and booking holdings, right? So these are stocks well over $1,000. So that's point number one is we're investing in fractional shares. And what that means is obviously the more we trade, the more trades we're making. So if, if a hedge is turning on and off every day, which it would if potentially if we're evaluating it daily, there's all sorts of tax consequences and slippage associated with those fractional shares. So we found and we back tested this that monthly, you know, the, the downside to doing it monthly is obviously is that, you know, we, let's say we turn the hedge on at the end of February, uh, all of a sudden this coronavirus thing was a complete one-time event, you know, fear, you know, blue skies emerge and a week later into mid-March, um, you know, everything's, everything's gone, gone back to normal. Um, getting stuck with a, a one month, you know, hedge, we're basically short beta for in a, in a potentially vicious rally, eats into returns. So that's the cost of doing it monthly. But the benefit- The whipsaw. The whipsaw. But the benefit of, and we call those like, you know, the, 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 the false- you know, The false uh, positive. False positives, exactly. Um, so we back tested it. And generally speaking, the way I think about it is the number of times that there's a kind of a false positive, hedge turns on and it actually costs our clients money um, in the kind of real deal events where the hedge is actually on for a number of months which I personally is not investment advice, but I personally suspect it will be if our thoughts on how this, this situation will play out. Um, the magnitude of the, of the, the volatility uh, and the drawdown uh, foregone that our clients have by having that hedge on uh, offsets all the times that the false positive cost them. So it's a monthly hedge. It's, it's systematic in nature. Uh, we're very unemotional about it. Um, you know, when the data turns, it turns. Uh, and the goal there, again, is, is it does, you know, through the cycle, it, it does eat into uh, compounded returns a bit. So, like whether you're aggressive, moderate, conservative, you come to Titan, um, having the hedge in place at Titan will eat into your bit of compounded returns, but it does improve sharp pretty meaningfully. Um, so, the volatility, even this year to date, uh, and it actually has improved uh, year to date returns as well. So, we've, we have outperformed the SP, um, which is surprising given our higher, higher beta. Um, but across risk profiles this year as a result of having that hedge on. So it's something that it is personalized. So that, that's why, again, we're not a, we're not a, a mutual fund or a ticker. And some clients ask us, you know what, I would love to like own Titan in my E-Trade account or my Vanguard account. We tell them like, it's, we wouldn't be able to personalize this hedge if we didn't know who you were. We wouldn't be able to know who you were if we didn't have this, this direct to, uh, to consumer platform. It's been a very rough time for trend following because it's been a period where there have been lots of whipsaws and so it's it's lagged, which is what happens at the end of a bull market. You get that the the false positives where it gets switched on and the market runs away, but the reason to have it is for exactly the, the thing that we're going through now. It should chop off that max DD, max drawdown should be much, much uh, lower than it would or better than it would otherwise be without yep. it. And I think... Anybody who's been through like a 2007, 2009 or a 2000, 2002 sees the value of it. Folks probably who got whipsawed in 2018 probably don't, but I think it's a good approach. I think it should work. I'd, I'd be interested to see how you, how you guys go with it. No, uh, it's, that's, that's funny because we, we, we actually did activate that hedge and uh, it was like January 1st of 2019. So you can imagine what clients were saying because we, we finished Jan 19. I think it was up something like mid-teens. Uh, and the, the market too, I think it was up 13% on the S&P. So January was like a vicious flare rally. up a little so bit. Like we, we got our, you know, the hedge quote unquote, you know, ripped our faces off. And so we definitely got a, got an earful from clients. It was a good learning experience, right? And, and, and they're getting edu educated just as we are, as we're doing live trading. Like we've tested all this stuff on a back tested basis, but um, you don't really get to understand the client's pain points and how they think about it until you're live. And um, yeah, I think, like you said, it's just a batting average. Or I should say slugging average thing. Um, if we can be right in terms of real deal events versus false positives, you know, 51% of the time, like you said, just the magnitude of the drawdown that we'll, we'll be able to save, I think will make it worthwhile. The toughest thing is uh, when you test it and you're testing it on like a monthly basis or something like that, when you're two weeks into it and you feel like you should have it on or the first time yep. that it kind of crosses through and you want to put it on. I think yep. that's the hardest thing about using the, the moving average. Um, totally. The Titan uh, domain is a great, you got titanvest.com, but you've been having some negotiations for titan.com, which would be like, that's an awesome domain if you can get that one. What's happening there? For sure. I'm actually pulling it up right now to make sure it's, see if it's still, okay, so now now they're redirecting it. That's funny. You know, so, so, uh, so our company's called Titan um, or, you know, more formally Titan Invest. And, uh, you know, Titan obviously is what we go by. Um, very simple, very punchy name. We tried to get the domain when we founded the company uh, about two years ago, and naturally it was taken. And it's a very common 
That's sure. That's great. Uh, yeah. And, and yeah, and, there, and there's all sorts of Titans. There's probably 50 or 60 different Titans out there. There's uh, several investment advisors uh, named Titan, and, and there's also uh, insurance companies named Titan. So Titan.com was owned by Titan Insurance, but they went out of business um, uh, some number of months ago, and uh, and the domain was up for sale. So we, we, we threw in a few offers. Uh, uh, not, they did not bite, and it looks like they've now redirected it back to Nationwide, which is interesting. Um, we would love to be Titan. Uh, as we think, you know, investing is probably just scraping the surface of what we'll do long term. Uh, and some do, some people do call us Titan Invest. Uh, we'll, we'll take it. But uh, yeah, for now, uh, Titan Invest didn't didn't necessarily roll off the tongue. Titan Invest felt like a nice little amalgamation. It's so hard to get a good .com, and it's hard because there are a lot of guys squatting on them. And when you go to buy them, their expectations for what they're going to get are just so high. And it doesn't help when you've got you know, every now and again, some sale goes through for like $3 million just to like keep their minds about some sort of gigantic payday that you could have when, you know, I think a few thousand dollars is probably really all these things are worth for the most part. For sure, for sure. And then, yeah, there's definitely some other tech startups that the ROI analysis is, is interesting because um, I'm trying to think of a few that come to mind. Um, Calm.com, Calm is like a meditation app. And, uh, I think that the CEO and founder was on a few podcasts talking about, I think they paid like, it was something like 300,000, maybe half a million dollars or more. It's like a pretty meaningful amount of their, 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 you know, their cumulative funding to date at the time <laughs> to buy calm.com. You're asking yourself like a scrappy founder, you're like, oh man, you really bet in the ranch. But um, I mean, I, I think now they're doing something like hundred, hundreds of millions of annual revenue. So it's definitely paid off for them. I think the benefits of SEO brand recognition are definitely there just uh it's just a it's a hard it's hard all i math to you know it's a lot of it's a lot of chunk uh, of change to, to to deposit up front to for potentially no payoff so there's a negotiation for sure what uh, are you invested in do you personally invest in the strategy or are you, you're allowed to have a pa how, do, how does that work it's a great question so vast majority of my I mean, net worth is, is invested in, in Titan, both uh, both individual, and then we also offer traditional Roth IRAs. Um, we'll be rolling out trust accounts, corporate accounts, a bunch of other account types. Um, uh, and then in terms of we, uh, PAs, we are allowed to have PAs, um, you know, similar to, to how things work on the buy side. Uh, you know, we, we have a, a trade approval process. Conflict so rules and things. Yeah, yeah chief compliance officer has to, um, has to approve, uh, sign off on everything. Um, we can own, own companies in the Titan book. Um, and we do. Uh, personally, the only reason I have a P that's not a Titan is because uh, we haven't yet rolled out um, the ability to, to own single stocks beyond the, the financial kind of holistic financial portfolios that we offer uh, yet. I said yet. Uh, we, we plan to down the road. Um, but no, it's I, I, that, a great question because that's honestly how I think about um, the future strategies we're launching. Right. I mean, coming from the buy side, the dream is like we want to be able we want every retail investor to be able to invest like you know, one of my idols, uh, David Swenson at Yale Endowment. Right. Which is, you know, he's not sitting there in S&P 500 index. Right. And I get that some years, some number of years in a row, all the pensions and endowments will underperform the S&P. And people will say, see, even these pros can't can't beat, the, the, you know, the indexes. And it always tends to be like this arbitrary timeline over which they're evaluating. And again, people don't don't take into account things that you and I talk about, which is you know, beta and, and, and what are your actual mandate on a risk adjusted basis. And so the way that we are, we're approaching it as like a pie chart is five, 10 years from now, what I would want my PA to look like is I would want to have a sliver of a bunch of different asset classes that I couldn't get if I wasn't, if I wasn't accredited today. So you have your absolute return piece, you have your domestic and foreign equity piece, you have some alternatives, which probably includes a little bit of crypto. Now, even though folks like Munger say it's rat poison, I, I call it shock insurance. <laughs> Um, probably a little bit of a real estate, right? And other privates, some venture, um, and, and then some some cash, right? Fixed income. Um, most people, it's cash or a bunch of mutual funds and index funds. And there's no rhyme or reason or science behind it. Uh, right now, we just have the domestic equity. We're thinking about absolute return. We're thinking about international, um, different size spectrum. So over time, we want to kind of build out that boilerplate, uh, a pie chart for people, customized based on the risk profile that I talked about. And uh, hey, I think if we do it the way we've been doing it, we can do so. Uh, we could be a part of the, the trend in the industry, which is obviously we see fee compression, right, across active management. I do think there's going to be a big change in how fees get charged. Um, a lot of thoughts on that. Um, right now, it's what, just what, what's going to what's going to change? Well, I, I mean, uh, folks like Schwab are testing. Um, well, not even testing. They've rolled out the subscription fee model. Mm -hmm. um, I don't love the upfront fee. 
uh, that they charge, the upfront planning fee, which is kind of basically getting their first year of revenue, first day. Uh, you know, they used to charge 28 bips on, I think, for their intelligent portfolios premium, and now it's, uh, I think it's uh, 30 bucks a month, you know, $300, $300 upfront planning fee. I do think, again, taking like cross-pollinating ideas from the consumer world, especially like the consumer subscription model world into fintech, I think has a lot of interesting dynamics. Um, now, naturally, there's like a bunch of tailwinds in asset management that I think are important to, to compensating managers that are going to be hard to give up. Naturally, like this 6%, 6 to 7% equity tailwind from rising markets over time is a nice revenue boost. Like if you're Schwab and you can go say, oh, we're going to go compound our assets at 6% doing no work because of this nice market tailwind, that's a tough thing to give up by going subscription. But um, even just on the back end, like I think as a startup, you know, all the opportunities for us to like have a sound business model and give more value back to clients, like we can make several, you know, we can make several meaningful revenue streams without having to charge clients because we do things that we're going to be approved to do on a regulatory basis, like, you know, earning interest on uninvested cash and lending out securities that are, have a high borrow and things like that. So I'm excited. I, I think, I think it's just the tip of the iceberg. I think like, I do think for CFPs, I think that the asset model makes a lot of sense. Uh, or I should say I, the subscription model makes a lot of sense. Like if you're doing a fee for service tax, so like a state planning service, like a review of a financial plan, you're about to buy a home. That's like things that are naturally, I think, dollar based. Um, you know, you're essentially valuing someone's time, some human's time, and there's not things that can easily be done by software. But, you know, asset management, I think a lot of these guys charging 25 basis points to like rebalance and do taxless harvesting, which has been kind of marketed as this like secret sauce, which, you know, our CTO can build in a day. Um, <laughs> I don't, don't think those, those things have much longevity. I think it's mostly marketing. I think those things will go to zero over time. So I do think a lot of these robo advisors um, and that's why you've seen, right, they're all rolling out cash accounts and full four line of credit uh, is because they realize, I think they see the writing on the wall that like, unless you really have differentiated active strategies that have performance and or some really unique engagement model, fees are going to zero. So you have to either go for fees outside of conventional asset management um, uh, and charge those to consumer or you have to make revenue in the back end. Um, so for now, we're focused on that format. We're focused on active differentiated strategies. And because we have a platform direct to our investors, we can do things not that are novel on the experience and like engagement front that I think they find worth paying for. You know, it's funny, the first uh, decade of the 2000s was two gigantic crashes and no uh, appreciation in the S&P 500 for, for the entire 10 years. And there was nobody talking at that stage about you just buy the S&P 500, you pay three bips and you don't worry about it. Last 10 years, you know, S&P 500 is probably the best performed strategy in the world. Get, get it for three bips and everything else looks really ugly beside that. But I kind of think that my feeling is that the next 10 years is going to look a lot more like the first 10 years than the last 10 years because it's, um, mm. I think folks are probably, this is the kind of wake up call to make folks move away from those passive strategies for very low fees. And I think it'll be better for guys who are doing something active. So I think, I think you're probably in a very good position for the, for the coming decade. No, it'll, it'll also just be interesting. Um, you know, it's not where most of the assets are. Like most of the assets are still in these institutional, the Schwabs and the Vanguards. But, but yeah, a lot, you mentioned like the tech startups, like a lot of these just have not lived through a cycle, right? And uh, and just observing like the liquidity. And, you know, again, a lot of these have been challenging uh, businesses for, for folks to fund. You know, because we're in the active space and we have very high user engagement, we're able to kind of grow organically without spending much money on marketing. But you know, I don't know if you've taken a look at like how these business models work, but a lot of these, a lot of these companies are spending hundreds of thousands of dollars a customer. And like I said, making 20, 50 bucks a year, it's a really tough model. And, and so they've been dependent on the venture market to subsidize their business models. And, you know, I'm sure there's venture, I know there was venture subsidization back in the first decade, you know, this century, but especially in the last five to 10 years, DDC startups, these FinTech consumer startups uh, have been massively subsidizing like, in paying dollars directly to Facebook and Google to try to acquire clients. Uh, without much differentiation, again, they're passive, low-cost products that you can kind of finagle yourself if you have, um, you know, enough gumption. So, I, I think it'll be interesting. But I, I do agree with you. I think I think active is disproportionately set up to kind of do much better than it has been. Yeah, it's been a funny. It's been a funny ten years, and I, I agree that that's the case. There's a lot of uh, non-economic or non-rational actors who are funded through VC and who can lose the money because they're. I think that they're on that sort of morphine drip of 
the expectation is the next round is going to be really easy to raise. And that's been true for a ex- really, really extended period of time. It certainly wasn't like that. And like, like everybody, the late 1990s was pretty quick. I wasn't, I wasn't in, I wasn't working at that stage, but I think it was pretty quick. And then the 2000s was just like brutal. All of that money just yep. disappeared. This time it's kind of, it's gone so on. I think it's funny how often I talk to somebody and they're, all they're doing is looking towards the next VC round. Yeah, it's crazy how things, you know, how quickly things change as well. Like, I don't know if you know, like Sequoia put out this, they actually put out a pretty infamous memo. You know, I think it was 2007 or 2008. It's pretty prescient. It wasn't exactly called the bottom or like called the, the drawdown, but it was called uh, RIP Good Times. Uh, and they actually went into talking about, you know, their, their predictions for how the venture landscape was going to dry up, uh, how founders should be hoarding cash cutting burn as much as possible, doing layoffs where necessary, basically preparing for this kind of winter. And they actually just put out one uh, in response. <laughs> the VC community, ironically, I think a lot of some of these folks have been faster moving in terms of like self-quarantine than any. And, and maybe it's because they have like a global purview and they see a lot of deal flow and and uh, just have a lot of boots on the ground. But a few of these funds in the VC community have, have a really good perspective, I think, on like how just market conditions are evolving. Um, a few funds like self quarantine the coronavirus like back in like late January early February and and so Sequoia put out a memo basically 12 years later now uh, not RIP good times but something along the lines of like prepare for this winter um, it'll be interesting to see how it jives with public markets there was kind of this tail wagging the dog for a while um, which is public markets would behave as long as the venture markets were willing to fund these companies and you know there's a dynamic of like private staying private for longer but you know WeWork is like the poster child clearly for uh, for, for you know VCs not willing to fund growth at all costs. So now there's definitely a narrative in the VC community and the startup community uh, shifting to like prove your business model, like prove profitability on this marginal customer at like the seed stage of funding, not at like the series G. And um, it's going to be interesting to see how the public markets react. Like a lot of these like, you know, these SaaS companies, even some of like the higher quality stickier enterprise SaaS companies that are now public, um, it's going to be easy. It's going to be interesting to see when and if they can catch a bid again, right? In terms of the multiples, like um, it's one of the things we've we've had a view on. Like if you look at our portfolio, we've been long some of these enterprise SaaS names, um, a few companies like Twilio and ServiceNow that we think have a really really unique business models um, and have some contrarian element to them uh, that that make them kind of pers- prospective compounders. Uh, but I do think uh, there's definitely a lot of questions now around like profitability, and uh, and so it'll be interesting to see how that unfolds. On coronavirus, I think it's been quite interesting watching uh, FinTwit because I think a lot of guys on FinTwit were very early to it too because I think that they, and VCs probably the same, a lot of guys understand that exponential growth curve really well, which is not intuitive unless you sort of model it out and think about it, which is what you're doing when you're kind of building a model for a business and trying to value it. You're thinking about that exponential growth curve and you can look at other countries and see where they were and kind of look at the US relative to those. So I think... It's been interesting. It's one of those things where, like, there was a lot of shade thrown at guys for like being amateur uh, virologists and things like that. But I, I kind of think that, like, some of those guys need some credit. Like, they did Ben Hunt on. I don't know if you follow these guys on Twitter, but they were very, very early to this stuff and calling it out. That's epsilon, epsilon for sure. theory. Yeah, yeah, Ben Hunt. No, it's a great point. And like, you know, I'll be the first person to say like, I'm, I'm not an epidemiologist. I actually come from a family of physicians. And uh, my, my, like my, my dad, for example, is the first person to say, like, I have no freaking clue what's going on. But your point, your point on exponential growth is actually a really good one. Um, like, like the thing that, you know, I think it's and it's also like a second and third order thinking. Right. Like, I think a lot of investors are better than the average American or average human on thinking through what second and third order impacts are. Uh, and, and are they priced in? Or are they over or undervalued? Um, and so one of the things that like, came to mind with coronavirus is you know, I have no idea on the R not and all these things like, you know, I'll try to go to the most reputable primary source to understand what that means. But I'm not going to have any predictions on like what that's, you know, whether that's priced in or not or how that may or may not unfold. Um, but what is pretty clear is like there's certain second and third order impacts that I think investors were appreciating long before the public has, namely this hospital bed thing. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, kind of connecting the dots between the exponential growth of kind of you know, pandemics and outbreaks uh, and the second or third order economic consequences. I think there's something like 900,000 or a million hospital beds um, in the U.S. And, you know, the, uh, 75% occupancy, call it, for a variety of just general health reasons. Right. Um, 
So if there's you know quarter million beds are free, if you just roll out that exponential growth curve, I think there's something like the doubling of cases is it happens every six days. And I think we're at, I think, you know, the reported number is probably a fraction of the actual number. So right. even if you're when the low to mid single digit thousands of cases today, where you know it's early to mid-March, you just roll that through, you're looking at millions of cases by like late April, early May, right? And say it's only like a 10%, you know, bed rate, right? 10% is is so infectious they have to go hospitalized, maybe even ICU. Like you're looking at full hospital bed capacity utilization by like late April, early May. Now, obviously, there's like a bunch of underlying assumptions on that exponential curve, can, you know, continuing. There not being any containment of it, ability to to kind of mitigate that curve, um, and then barring any like massive systemic, you know, upgrade or deployment of new beds on the supply side. That's a that 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 you know whether that means like existing patients are getting like pushed out or how that affects the system that's like naturally constrained is a second order consequence. And I'm sure there's third and fourth order consequences as well. But that's one that I that I heard. Um, so yeah, I, I think the broader point is like, it, it's honestly just more like game theory and, and, and math and like basic kind of fundamentals involved, as opposed to having to kind of predict this na- this specific virus. Um, so that's, that's kind of how we approach it, Toby is like, we're kind of looking like like Buffett said, we're kind of looking for two foot hurdles to, to step over. We're not trying to like, you know, what's the latest like speculative healthcare stock that I think can like massively re-rate yeah. because produce some N95 mask or something like that. Like we're looking for companies that like with a pretty high degree of certainty, if you look out three to five years, we don't see like material, you know, free cash, sustainable free, free cash flow impairment. Um, certainly a lot of these stocks were expensive. Now they're just 20% less expensive. They're yeah. still pretty. That's the reason we're not telling clients like go hand over fist and, and, and all in back up the truck. Um, there could be the second wave phenomenon, but if I look out three to five years, those are kind of the two foot hurdles. It's like this the first strategy is full of compounders, you know, a couple names, booking Disney, um, you know, that are travel exposed, Apple di- travel or China exposed, uh, definitely have gotten hit hardest are probably going to have the worst years from just from an earnings decline perspective. But looking out three to five years, it's, I just don't see, I mean, unless this is completely different than history, it's hard to see how a pandemic just like material affects these types of companies. I think certain sectors like oil, we're going to set this oil price war a few days ago between Saudis and, and, and Russia, um, on the industrial side, how that affects employment and the ripples through the economy, not saying that there won't be like a significant hit to GDP growth, but just long-term earnings growth, which is how we think, like we're modeling long-term EPS growth and, um, and then multiples on that. It's just it's hard to see how these stocks are like lower five years from now. Yeah, I agree with all of that uh, completely. Uh, I think that's well stated. Uh, we're just about coming up on time, Clay. Uh, if folks want to get in contact with you, what's the best way of doing that? So head to our website, which is titanvest.com, T I T A N. For the moment. <laughs> For the moment, yeah, titan.com, potentially in the future. Um, you could also shoot me an email, uh, clay at titanvest.com. Uh, I'm on Twitter. Uh, I'm trying to become more active. If you DM me, I'll, I'll definitely respond. And uh, yeah, I, we, we, again, we, we're, we're a small team. Um, so one of us, will, if, if you get a message from us, it's definitely one of us, uh, a small research team and, and a small developer team as well. So uh, we'll nimble, we'll be quick to respond. Um, be happy to chat. Uh, what's, the, what's the Twitter handle again? So my Twitter, Twitter handle is, uh, is virtual clay. And then uh, Titans is at TitanVest. Cool. Uh, Clayton Gardner, Titan, thank you very much. Thank you.